0: Welcome to the Andrew Young School podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public policy and management, social work, and urban studies. On this episode, we'll speak to Imam Dr. Khalil Abdul Rashid, an alumnus of our Bachelor's of Social Work program and former GSU instructor. After completing his undergraduate degree at Georgia State, Khalil completed a master's degree in Comparative Islamic Law at Marmara University and two Islamic Seminary doctoral licenses in Islamic Sciences. He earned his doctorate in Liberal Studies in American Islam from Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Khalil was the first paid Muslim chaplain for Columbia University and Barnard College in New York City, and he served as an advisor to the NYPD Police Commissioner. Today, Khalil serves as the first full-time university Muslim chaplain on the campus of Harvard University, instructor of Muslim studies at Harvard Divinity School, and public policy lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So Khalil, you were born and raised in Atlanta, whereabouts?
1: Yeah, born and raised in Atlanta, I grew up uh, two blocks or three blocks from Morehouse College and Atwood Street. And then later on, as when I was in middle school, we moved to DeKalb County, um, Boulder Crest Road. And that's where my mother still stays.
0: So your roots in Atlanta, I understand, are pretty deep. Your family has a lot of really great stories about yeah. being a part of the Atlanta community.
1: Right, right. So my father um, went to Morehouse here, graduated. He went to John Marshall Law School, went on to work for our ambassador, Andrew Young, when he was mayor of Atlanta. So he worked for city council in Atlanta. Then he went on to become the first African-American mayor of the city of Stone Mountain, Georgia. He was elected in 1996 or 97. Uh, His name is Chuck Burris. Chuck Charles is his first name, but he was known as Chuck Burris. And uh, my mother went to Spelman College and grew up, uh, or went to Spelman College here and worked here. She got her graduate degree from Georgia State, uh, actually, and um, she still teaches for Spelman College.
0: So was Georgia State kind of a given then? Was it a family legacy thing because of your mother or
1: you know when I, I graduated from high school in nineteen ninety three I graduated North Atlanta high School, and when I graduated my 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 grades were not the best. So when I actually came into Georgia state, I don't know if Georgia state still has this program or not, but when I came into Georgia State, they accepted me in a special program called the Developmental Studies Program, and that was a program to help incoming students get sort of get, their, get, get to par in English and math before they actually entered their academic coursework. So Georgia State, you know, welcomed me as a, as a student that had not performed at the highest level and helped me really advance myself. Uh, and then after two years in the developmental studies program, I entered the, the regular track. I started off as a journalism... No, I started off as a film and theater major, excuse me. And uh, until the Olympics were here, after the Olympics, I switched to journalism in 1997. Then I went from a journalism major to education major, Uh, so I was in the School of Education. And then right a semester before I was due to graduate, I decided to change my major again, and I switched to social work.
0: So what ultimately landed you on social work?
1: You know, what landed me in the field of social work, I must give credit to my late uncle, Dr. John Turner, who was actually dean. He was the first uh, African-American dean of the School of Social Work at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. You know, he's a very experienced social worker, and known in academia. And he, I called him uh, when I was in a moment of intellectual crisis about what to do with my life. And he su- suggested that I take a course, one class on intro to social work. So I took the first class, and uh, my friend, the teacher was Dr. Elizabeth Beck. And um, from that course on, I was sold. She had inspired me to change the world. I was introduced to something that I felt was part of my core being and helped me have a mission.
0: So talking about your time here at Georgia State, you kind of saw the breadth of the campus. I'm curious, do you think that you would have had that kind of experimentation had you gone somewhere else?
1: No, I think I would have had a very different exposure and encounters to life. I think, you know, what being here at Georgia State had a lot of different... It was extremely transformational for me per- personally. Number one, the fact that it was an urban campus it helped me grow intellectually academically but also culturally and historically part and parcel of the fabric of an, uh, of a, of a city and a diverse city and a dynamic city so while teaching me to sort of aspire it also kept me grounded right and not keeping me sort of isolated in and in, in a bubble but also uh Georgia State being where it is you know in the city of Atlanta with its amazing history and being on the forefront of civil rights justice is is, is deeply connected to the the work and the well-being of minorities in the Atlanta community and the city and in the city of Atlanta and the overall Southern community and deeply connected to the work of leadership that's here. And so um, I think had I gone to other places I applied to other schools around, I think I would have gotten sort of a different flavor and a different field, and I probably would have gone into a completely different direction. I'm very grateful that that I came here and stayed here.
0: Georgia State students always talk about just the amount of people that you're exposed to. And I'm curious, was that an experience that you shared as well?
1: Well, the volume of people that come through Georgia State was certainly intimidating for me as a young undergraduate. What it helps you to do, though, it is it challenges your perception of uh, not only yourself, but of other people as well. So, you know, you are introduced to a plethora of diversity that's here and various different ways of being, um, you know, uh, being human, uh, different people, not only from different uh, intellectual backgrounds, different faith backgrounds, different geographical uh, perspective, different languages as well, different understandings of right and wrong. And so that helps uh, eliminate the blind spots that each and every one of us have when we come to a certain space. And it's very, very beneficial in preparing you to enter the public sphere at large. And that's what I learned. Looking back on it now, that was, I would say, the, one of the greatest um, aspects of, 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 of Georgia State's In terms of harnessing so many people from so many backgrounds is that it's like being in a small microcosm of being in the public sphere. And and when you're talking about entering into the public debate or public awareness or public policy or public work, it does mean, mean encountering society. And that those aren't small numbers. So you're talking large numbers. Going through that, encountering that, and learning how to um, maneuver into those spaces and knowing how to, learning how to feel comfortable in that space, part of growing up and part of leadership. That's what this institution uh, is all about.
0: Did you experience any of that discomfort as you were adjusting during that period?
1: You learned how to deal with change. And you got used to adapting to the fact that things change. And that's a commentary, I think, about life in and of itself, that, you know, progress being about change and development, that's something that people are normally sort of uh, intrepid about and nervous about. But it's a fact of life that we have to sort of deal with. So the question then becomes, how do we turn change into something positive? And how do we make change something that is um, more comfortable for all of us as a society and as a group? Before I graduated, my first day on the Job as an as an intern as a student intern um, was 9/11. And so my coming out of college, my work career uh, was shaped by the by the post 9/11 world. And as an American Muslim, um, that was deeply impactful uh, for me because it raised questions not only about my faith tradition, but it also raised questions about you know how do I address being Muslim in an American context, as a not only as a Muslim but also as a professional as well, and then how do I offer that kind of advice to other professionals that are going to encounter uh, other Muslims uh, and try to help them in their spaces? So there were a lot of questions that I have that the context imposed upon me that I had to seek answers to, and so my journey overseas was a journey for self-discovery, and uh, it took a while, and it and I. And it involved quite a few encounters but that was that was the motivating factor and when i felt that i was had achieved what i set out to achieve i returned back to the states i came back in 2010
0: Let's talk about that transition into the public sphere. You said that being exposed to the public sphere while you were here at GSU was beneficial. But uh, from what I've read about your career, it seems like your transition was pretty abrupt. You went from being born and raised in Atlanta, going to school here in Atlanta, to traveling all over the world and being exposed to all sorts of different publics. Can you talk about how you made that shift?
1: Well, I, you know, it's how I made the shift and that transition uh, from being from, you know, in the in the crowd, so to speak, at Georgia State to being to going into other places isolated or not on uh, different continents was very interesting. It was really about finding myself. So you're exposed to so many different people in classrooms, faculty members of different ideas, but you need also time to find out who you are. You get introduced to other people's thoughts. Well, what about finding time to fashion your own thoughts? Um, you're introduced to other people's problems and solutions. Well, how You need to also cultivate a sense of how you are going to solve your own problems and your solutions. One of the most fabulous things I learned here at Georgia State from a class I took, actually Dr. Beck told me this, all of this, this she said, every social worker needs a social worker. Every counselor needs a counselor. Every therapist needs a therapist, you know, because at some point you've got to deal with your own self, you know. And so I had questions that I had about myself, about my own well-being, about what it meant for me to be who I was. I had an opportunity to do graduate work here, but I said, no, I need to answer these questions first for me. So I traveled. And for me, it, you know, my travels took me to different places.
0: So can you tell us where all you went during your time overseas?
1: Yeah. Um, first, I spent a short period in uh, Damascus, Syria. And then after that, I went to Yemen for a little bit. I spent a short period of time in Yemen. Uh, but then from Yemen, which was very uh, different, it was desert. It was very rural. It was peaceful and calm. And this was in the early 2000s. And then uh, this meaning 2000s, Three, uh, 2002 and 2003. And uh, after that, I went back to the States, actually. And I taught here at Georgia State. I taught Arabic language. But then I left and I went to Istanbul, Turkey. And that's where I spent all of my years doing seminary training, study, uh, exposure. I traveled around Turkey as well.
0: What was the biggest adjustment from Atlanta to the Middle East?
1: Yes, it was a, It was uh, an adjustment from, I, I like to call it, from Atlanta to Anatolia, actually. <laughs> Well, it was more than just linguistic, um, certainly cultural. Certainly, it was the, sort of the meeting of different horizons is the way I like to describe it. So, you know, my perspective on life and my background was very different from what I had encountered. So, but these were different ways of of finding meaning in life, right? And also different ways of religious expression, too, because, you know, the way the Muslim community was here in the United States, it's not like it is in Yemen, it's not like it was in Syria, it's not like it was in in Turkey, for that matter. So, you know, uh, it was also an encounter that brought to the forefront diverse ways of being, in terms of practice, uh, religious uh, expression from a cultural perspective. But um, I think, for me, it made me sort of realize uh, deeper that... Being a uh, an, an American, what it meant overseas in other places, and then more importantly, how being an African American played out in different contexts overseas. Things that I didn't know, things that those those folks in different countries didn't know about me and my background. And it also brought to the surface certain personality traits about me that I was not aware of because I was not put in certain environments. Right. So I got I got to know myself.
0: What was the transition like when you came back to the States? Was it jarring at all?
1: Well, the the States had changed quite a bit too. I was gone for six years, from 2004, 2005 to 2010. So the, you know, the States had changed a bit. I, and I'd gone, I didn't come back to Atlanta. I came back to New York City. And so the challenges were different there. But I think what I did change was the fact that there was a growing need for, you know, responses to institutional for new form institutional forms of um, uh, religious racism and bias that were negatively impacting the American Muslim community particularly in New York City and other parts of, of of the United States and there was sort of a new form of hatred that was that had been produced and so the what I had experienced well from my perspective was that you know the United States had come a long way in terms of the civil rights movement and then in the post 9 level world that those struggles, the struggle of African Americans uh, for civil rights and civil ju- justice had then mutated and transmutated into a struggle for American Muslims against various forms of hate and Islamophobia. So that part had changed, I
0: think. Once you kind of found yourself and found your way of practicing and came back to the States and started teaching, did you find that that was a continual evolution or do you feel like you kind of came back with... A vision in mind, and that's what you've stuck to so far.
1: well, a vision and an evolution, right so so obviously. You know, what works in one place doesn't work in another place. And so what I realized was, you know, I had done quite a lot of study about, you know, Islam and Muslimness and this, that, and the other, and a lot of exposure to culture. I had not done enough studies about uh, Americanness. And I grew up as a black American in the South. But to understand black American history, to understand American history, is part and parcel of being able to articulate a vision going forward. Because we are uh, products of history. Uh, And although history, whether or not you believe history repeats itself, it certainly rhymes. Uh, There are certain consistent themes that are there. And there were things that the American, I realized the American Muslim community, needed to understand and know more about regarding American history. And there were things that Americans needed to know regarding Muslim history. And so... I found that uh, the blending of both of those was, 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 was very important to the work that I wanted to do um, as an American Muslim leader and to setting about, setting forward a vision for that through my work. So I wanted to do graduate work uh, regarding, you know, a variety of things. And one of them was uh, American history and liberal studies.
0: And so how has that manifested now? I know you're at Harvard now, but what was what were the steps to get you there?
1: Well, it wasn't rational, logical necessarily, but I did my doctorate work in, you know, in the overall field of liberal studies with a a concentration on, you know, my dissertation was on black American uh, Muslim history from Malcolm X to Muhammad Ali and I did a lot of coursework in American studies, American history, um liberal studies in general. And I started to work in my wife and I started to work uh in the community in Dallas to educate both Muslim communities and non-Muslim communities about what you know the an American is, right? And to do so not only to educate to educate and to foster conversation but also to as a way to combat um bigotry because of ignorance. And we established a seminary, uh, the first uh, seminary that was established for American Muslim, educating American Muslims, called the Islamic Seminary of America, it still exists down there. And so, in the process of that work, there was a new election, and there were issues that were coming to the forefront nationally regarding Muslims in America, etc. And Harvard made a decision to open up a uh, a new position, never done before, never established before, a university Muslim chaplain in the president's office. At Harvard University and there was a national search I was advised to apply uh, on the recommendation of somebody I applied and I was hired uh, within a couple within a few months I was hired and that caused us to move from Dallas to Cambridge we moved uh, two years ago in 2017 and um, so my work shifted there and so On campus now at Harvard, you know, I'm working along with my wife, who's also the newly appointed Muslim chaplain on campus as well, Samia Omar. She, we both work together to try to help students, both Muslim students and students that are not, you know, uh, Muslim, to help them understand what it means to be um, diverse, uh, inclusive, and specifically what it. What are the components and what are the things that are part of the tapestry of American Muslimness, and as a result of that, how do we combat various forms of uh, hatred and discrimination that targets people of color, communities of, of 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 different faith traditions, minority groups, and specifically Muslim communities also? Uh, we try to do that in a variety of ways and from a variety of different programs
0: you know when a student comes into your office or a group of students what's the most common question that you get is there kind of an overriding like set of questions that you hear every day from students at Harvard
1: well undoubtedly i would say from muslim students the uh, the consistent factor has to do with issues of questions Regarding the distinction between cultural practice and religious practice. If American Muslim students are having trouble sorting out cultural things from religious norms, obviously, you know, uh, Americans who are not Muslim are having trouble sorting out what are cultural things related to Muslim practice and what are things that are not cultural that are sets of, of, of part of the core religious elements themselves. So this, this is the first thing. The second thing, um related to that. Now this is this distinction between culture and religion. The second thing that's related to that is how does Islam relate to X? And these are from questioners in general, right? How does Islam, you know, you know, how does how does Islam relate to homelessness? How does Islam relate to public policy, right? Um, resources about what Islam says about X. Um, and in this sense, it's not as that they're not necessarily that folks are looking for a religious question, but they are understanding Islam as a a civilizational way of thinking, right? An alternative way of being, right? So, you know, what would it, what would be an Islamic perspective on, you know, for example, how to deal with mass incarceration, for example? So the Islamic Tradition has religious components to it, but it also has a civilizational component to it. Perspective about how to live and organize a life, cities, and structures of an organizational component. So those are, those are the core questions. And sometimes those questions come because students are doing comparisons and their, their research has to do with groups, uh, diverse groups and the majority Muslim, or they are looking at different ways of thinking about a problem and comparing sort of philosophical ways of approaching it. Where we get this a lot is in ethics. For example, students studying ethics or philosophy, right? So, issues related to justice, you know, so, you know, from a justice perspective, from a European Enlightenment perspective, there's this approach, and from a, a Confucian, you know, perspective, there's that approach. Well, what about from an Islamic perspective? Those, those, so, on the one hand, culture versus religion, and those introduce a whole another set of issues, and the other hand, is Islam as a lived experience, and an way of living uh, versus religion.
0: So reading some other talks that you've given and interviews that you've conducted, I'm really interested in this conversation you have about religion as a lived experience and this idea of developing a spiritual quotient in students. Can you speak to kind of what that means and how your work relates to that?
1: I'm a firm believer that in the in the fact that a student's intellectual journey in the academy should be fostered. By not just an attention to their cerebral capacities but to their 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 spiritual capacities as well you know the the mani- this manifests itself negatively in the the rise of young students who are suffering from various degrees of mental health issues um, and there's a there 's a spectrum to that, so not every intervention you know with students who are dealing with mental health challenges, not every single intervention has to be clinical, right? Medicine can't solve everything. Neither can, you know, readings in philosophy either all the times or in economics or in literature or in mathematics. Students need to have the opportunity in their college careers, both undergraduates and graduates, to sit down and have time to have a conversation about how you get through life from experienced adults with experience with life. My lived experience is what I call it, and those kinds of conversations can be done in a variety of ways. And universities, I think, have to invest in that. But they, those things are not fostering a student's um, IQ. Right? Those things are fostering a student's internal well-being in a way that you know counseling and behavioral health specialists are not able to do. Right? Students' crises and problems aren't always solved through therapy oftentimes it's through amazing conversations about how you get through life and about hearing about the, from the challenges um, that faculty members have had, you know, uh, famous persons or even average persons about, you know, what I call the grandma, the conversation you had with your grandmother in the wintertime around a cold fire about, you know, how grandma did that, you know, when she was going through this challenge, right? I mean, those are the conversations students need to also supplement their academic work. And those conversations, while not IQ-oriented, are what, what, what I call SQ-oriented. They're spiritual quotients, right? They tap into the the spiritual faculties of students. And that's also what I believe chaplaincy is all about. It's not, it's not purely religious, and it's certainly not about proselytization. But there is room, then there should be room, in the academy for students of no matter what faith background you are, you're a part of, or even if you're part of no-faith tradition, to be able to sit with Someone who comes from a particular tradition about life, from a particular perspective about life, and to have a conversation about how to get through life. Oftentimes, universities, you know, ed- education targets, you know, success. Certainly, success is important. But we have to have a conversation about what success is and what it is not. And with the vast wealth that our country has, the vast amount of resources, we don't put enough money and investments into cultivating good moral judgment about what the right thing to do is oftentimes too many times the discussion about what's the most efficient way to do it from a rational or budgetary point of view or the cheapest way to do it but there's a right way to do things too and that's where people that come from faith backgrounds can help foster those conversations because faith communities and chaplains specifically university chaplains can help students become introduced to different horizons of thinking so if you're going to be introduced to marx If you're going to be introduced to Nietzsche, if you're going to be introduced to Aristotle, well, why shouldn't you be introduced to Confucian or to Muhammad, right, or to uh, Buddha, or to some other practitioner who offers a different way to see the world, rather than the pure sort of capitalistic mode of production that we that breeds a certain amount of you know nepotism about what success is, and when students can't can't live up to that expectation, they have breakdowns. So I was saying maybe what success looks like for some of our students is different. So maybe some people go on to Harvard, Neal, and Princeton, but maybe others work in shelters, right? And why should that be any less successful, you know? And so if if that's what is meaningful for that person, and especially if they're making a, a difference in somebody else's life. So that's what I mean by spiritual quotient right that that universities put a lot of money and emphasis into athletics that 's the body you know research that 's the mind well, what about the spirit we are we are we are we are creatures of soul and spirit as well, even if in academia there's some trepidation about that, but the reality is the university welcomes everybody, and I guarantee you in the average home of the average American. The spirit, the soul, the consciousness is discussed in some way, form, or fashion. The idea that we are transcendent, we are a little bit more than the concrete, uh, even if it's just about basic values, you know, do, un- do good to your neighbor, right, uh, and things of that, the golden rule. This country is built on that too. So chaplains have that role, and I've, I believe strongly that that has tremendous value in the educational experience of students. And universities should adopt that as a important factor. Development offices should introduce this component to donors that this is a part of the university that we are, we are allowing our students to have access to different ways of thinking, different ways of success, uh, to fund and and endow those things, you know, to have a chaplain, multiple chaplains, uh, to engage in conversations with students about life that's that's what I'm that's what I'm about and that's what I believe is very
0: important you've had a really diverse range of professional and academic and spiritual experiences do you think that's improved your ability to relate to people as a chaplain because it seems like you have a much broader base to work from
1: well i do believe in the value of an interdisciplinary approach to to to, to learning it it in my experience it you know the more lenses you have the less your blind spots are, and because uh, oftentimes we approach life with a psychop- cycloptic vision about things, because we come from our perspective, and that's again about the spiritual quotient. So the more students can hear from people of diverse backgrounds, then the more that they become equipped to encounter people with diverse backgrounds. And we have interdisciplinary studies, and I think we are living in an era now where there's, where more disciplines are becoming interdisciplinary. Um, and I think that's a great thing, but I think there should be a vision regarding that, and I think that that vision should not should, should 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 become part and parcel of not only the curriculum but of the you know the culture of the university as well. without it being an imposition, on the contrary, it should be an opportunity for each student. So just like the required courses, you've got to do all kinds of things. there should be required opportunities. That are not required for you to go to, but there are opportunities for you to have if you want to be an educated person, uh, an experienced person. Employers should take that into consideration, right? I mean, you know, it's not just about your experience in terms of your grades and your classes. I mean, employers should should pride students who've taken a year off to go to the Himalayas. Right? Or have gone to go dig a well in in, 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 Central Africa someplace, right? Or gone hiking in, in, in the Alps or, or whatever the case is, right? That should be valued as well. That university's value, say, this, this student has this experience and this experience can do this for management or it can do this for advertising and marketing. A, a reformed view of an interdisciplinary approach. Not just disciplines in the old sense, but the, And not just disciplines and combining the arts and the sciences, but interdisciplinary from the idea of, uh, I mean, the idea of discipline is is experience that molds your conduct, right? molds who you are. That's why it's called a discipline. Uh, And so experiences that cause you to be different. Um, which can then affect your productivity, not in a market-driven sense, but in a qualitative.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about that. Another thing that I uh, saw you speak about that I really liked was this idea: is leadership as a vocation that isn't necessarily secondary to a job, but is part of any job or part of any education, and that everyone should have this opportunity for some form of leadership. How does that play into what you do every day?
1: Well, I, you know, I don't see, I don't clock in and clock out. You know, it, actually, if I did, I would consider it uh, quite a degrading thing. That doesn't mean that people clock in, clock out are, are, are degraded. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, you know, when we're serving students, it shouldn't be driven by time. It shouldn't be bound by limitations. It is something that we are, that we give ourselves to. And I think anybody who has been called to leadership understands that it is a vocation it is something that you are taught to do because of not only the people that have taught you but because you have learned that that the people that have gone before you have gone through great sacrifice to make this country a better place and this world a better place and there's a great deal of humility with that i had a teacher who told me once you know when i was you know falling asleep in class it's going to sound a bit weird but he He said, you can sleep in the grave. You don't have time to sleep. There's work to do, right? The idea that we already have limited time. Nobody's going to live forever. We already have a limited time, limited resources. So what are we going to do? And we need to make the most of it. And as a vocation, you realize that you're not, although you need time for yourself and time for your family, that's that's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. But as a vocation, you know that you are there to give all, all of what you have, to those who are asking for some of it. And um, if you don't, if you're not there, that is deeply impactful for that person. And if you are there, it's deeply impactful for that person. So the five minutes you have with a student, the 30 minutes you have with a student that you might not ever see before can actually shape their lives in such a way that they take what you've given them to a space that impacts 30,000 people. And if you don't give that, if you don't give all of what you have in that, in that time with that student, then they, they might have that same space for that 30,000 people, but it won't be as impactful. So as a vocation, you, under, you are not thinking that, oh, if I'm talking with one person, uh, let me give my worst speech. Or if I'm talking to 30,000 people, let me give my best speech. Your speech is going to be the same, whether it's one person or five people or five million people, because it's not about the numbers. It's not about the size. It's about the substance. You understand that you are serving a person and to serve one human being is to serve humanity. And to neglect one human being is to neglect humanity. But if you only see it in transactional times, you're clocking in at nine, I'm finishing at five, so if you meet someone at 5.30, you're, you're, you're off the clock. I'll see you tomorrow. That's not the right way to approach leadership. That might be the right way to approach a different profession, but leadership is not a profession. No matter how much we try to professionalize it, leadership is a vocation. You cannot teach leadership in a curriculum, in my opinion, leadership is taught through human examples. And because of that, there's a value that's there that can't be quantified. There are skills that are learnable, but people can learn skills. It doesn't mean they'll apply them. And that it doesn't mean they'll apply them well. So you're, you know, people need to understand leadership as a vocation, that they give themselves to that. And they give themselves that because an entire generation of men and women gave themselves to make us better, We don't see who they are. Sometimes we read about them. But they sacrificed. They went to jail. They sweat and they bled. They died. They fought for this country, for our freedoms, for our recognition, for our our ability to go. They gave money. They donated. Um, They lived so that we could have these resources. And we have a responsibility. And so that's what i'm trying to say
0: so i have two more questions for you the first one's gonna be really big and then the second one's gonna be a little bit more of a softball so i'm just gonna warn you the big one is what's the big question that you're (laughs) grappling with or trying to answer right now through your work
1: how do we fight and combat a network of hate that has influenced our politics, our law, our media, our institutions, and our communities?
0: And so what's the next step in front of you to try to address that?
1: Step by step, <laughs> person by person. I think more teaching in the classroom or the way we, you know, we have to, I think the status quo is unacceptable. We've gotten used to mediocrity, and that's because in many cases, we have examples of leaders in the public sphere that are just deplorable at best and horrible at worst and we have gotten used to that because that's what has been shown to us and that has conditioned us and i think the, the 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 example is a reconditioning through sort of revisiting our values our core values and more importantly seeing that there are alternative ways to effectuate those values so we've heard the term justice all day long throughout so many different contexts but you know I mean, walk this city at night, see if justice is served. Walk New York City at night, Cambridge at night, and see if justice is served for people sleeping on the streets. You know, go to any courthouse, look and see who's there, see what happens, see if that's justice. You know, go to any school district, you know, and see what's going on in terms of how, what kids are going through. I've got a kid in high school, middle school, now elementary school. And see the kind of education that one school district has and another has. And how some kids are treated in certain school systems. And justified, is that justice? As I was mentioning, we talk about liberty and freedom all day long. Liberty and justice for all. Say in the Pledge of Allegiance in every single school, uh, every single day. We don't care about justice for all. We don't have, if we care about it, we don't have justice for all. We certainly don't. You know, if you talk about folks that are incarcerated... The, well, there's justice for three-fourths of the of the population, given that we lock up a fourth of it. So these values, people hear, but we don't practice. So we need different, we need new alternative ways of thinking about old values that we've taken for granted, that we've buried. And so there needs to be a big discussion at the university, in the university campuses that are not about politics, but just about, you know, values in this country. And how do we live according to, if these are our values that we've agreed upon, if, that was, if that's the case, are we consistent with that? Let's be honest about it. Is that for everybody? And if not, then why? And then then how do we get there? So oftentimes we politicize things and we think that we it's become normalized. Is it okay to hate people? Really? Is it really okay to hate people because of their skin color, because of their faith tradition, because of their lifestyle, because of their ability or disability, because of their gender? Is that really okay? Do you want your kids like going through that? Really? Um, and if that's okay, then do we agree upon that? Um, and if that's the case, does that become policy? So that becomes law? Didn't we do that before once in the 20s? Didn't we live through that? Can we learn from history? Right? So let's, let's have this discussion and then go from there. But we're not even having the discussion at that level yet. So that's where I think it needs to
0: happen. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming in and sitting down with us this afternoon. If people want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way to figure out about that?
1: So I'm on the the chaplain's website at Harvard University. Um, And so you can search my name up or you can go to the Harvard chaplain's website and find Khalil Abdur-Rashid there and click on me. I've got my own webpage there. And um, my email is there and you can email me and reach out anytime.
0: Well, thanks again for coming back to Georgia State University for the day. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. For more information about Khalil Abdur-Rashid and the chaplaincy program at Harvard, visit chaplains.harvard.edu. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced and edited by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance from Jennifer Giratano and Victoria Jesse. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu.